Yeah boy, it's Author's Dozen Revised, part two. If you haven't listened to part one, I mean, do that. But what we did is we took a revolutionary tour of revolution. We started with uh, the idea that we all begin in comfort. We started with a completed work and the claim that it is easier to remain the same than to reform. We also mentioned that all reforms begin with desire. A desire to do better, to be better, to leave the world better than we found it. We all have these desires, and I'm going to tell you why none of these desires ever come to fruition without a heavy push. Last week I talked about the revelatory experience I had in watching Judas and the Black Messiah. I experienced then a Jimmy Neutron brain blast, where I saw every positive reform in America, then saw the connective tissue that unites them all. Everything good in America came about because someone living in discomfort decided to make everyone else uncomfortable. Every revolution begins with two opposing desires. One is the desire for comfort. The other is the desire for change. Why does this seemingly self-explanatory statement need explained? Because, brosif, we imagine ourselves as rational beings who seek the highest amount of personal utility. We imagine that we do what we do because it's best for us. We imagine wrong. I'm going to demonstrate that the desire to prevent change is so powerful that it overrides most other desires in our life. This is especially dangerous when our desire is to be creative, which is inherently opposed to the desire of being conservative. Now, we're not talking political ideologies here, though maybe a little bit. Um, like, okay, well, when I look at the culture of art, which purports to be an especially progressive, hippie-ish, and eccentric, anti-conservative profession, if there ever was one, I see surprisingly little reform or revolution. This is a rather audacious claim, and it becomes audaciouser when the counterpoint is a selling point of the art world. The intrinsic value of artworks is, if anything, enhanced by its inventiveness, so there would seem to be an incentive to foster the most revolutionary works imaginable. One attempting to raise utility would raise creativity. And yet, unimaginative tendencies pervade even this field where imagination is profitable. It's so funny to me how people use Star Wars as this like template of like how to tell a good story. And that story, the original one, The New Hope, um, begins with Luke Skywalker, you know, stuck on his home planet, basically like caught up in the day to day, the conservative, the, you know, do everything like you did it yesterday sort of thing. And he just looks up at the twin sons and he's like, I want something more. I want to look, I want to go. And then he's told that his dad is like a lightsaber man and a cool Jedi uh, wizard man. And and he's like, oh, I guess I got to stay at the farm, though. <laughs> and the thing that actually pushes him out the door is seeing his aunt and uncle turned into little smoking skeletons. And people take that and they're like, OK, let's stick to this formula. Let's be as conservative as possible. Let's do the day-to-day. -day. Let's, uh, you know, do today what worked yesterday. The point of the story was to be adventurous. Ya dinguses? Dingusai? All right, all right. I told you in the last episode we're going to require a level of proof uh, for these audacious claims about revolution. Now, the trouble is, is that the revolutionary nature of any given work of art or artist is necessarily unquantifiable. But there are some statistics that we can turn to to discover if even the art world, these 
folks who treat creativity as a god, we're going to see that they're actually super rigid and inflexible. So, okay, what should we expect of a flexible culture? The same thing we would expect of a flexible body, the ability to change to meet a goal. So if Jack be limbo, Jack be quick, Jack can accomplish his goal of going under limbo stick. So if we want to see if the art world is creative, if they're flexible, we should see if they're flexible in other ways that are more quantifiable. So let's see. A self-professed goal, like, you know, beneath the limbo stick of American commercial filmmaking, which we'll call Hollywood for now, um, has been for the past decade to embody diversity and equality. We shouldn't doubt that Hollywood legitimately wants to achieve this goal. Their incentives range from cultural, which is, you know, you want to be seen as progressive, to moral, which is the belief in the positive outcomes of representing unrepresentative groups, um, to even financial. You know, statistics show, for instance, that female-led films do better at the box office, like 16% more earnings, dog. We also see examples where representing unrepresented groups earns the filmmakers cachet with thereafter loyal audiences, such as Spike Lee, Bruce Lee, and those are only the examples named Lee. Alright, so we can be pretty confident in the goal. These are, you know, all incentives to do something. There's no downside, except for comfort. <laughs> So between 2007 and 2019, Women of Color directed just 13 of 1,300 top-grossing movies. For you statisticians out there, that's 1%. <laughs> okay, so they're not doing great, but, I mean, maybe that's just the film world, right? Well, okay, in 2019, 33% of indie film directors were women, but only 10% of Hollywood directors were women. And despite what we said before about female-led films making more money, top female actors earn 38% as much as the top male actors. And that's compared to the rest of the United States, where a woman earns, on average, about 80% of what men make. And men are seen and heard nearly twice as often as women in film. They're seen and heard even less in Academy Award winners. So the higher we go up on the rungs, the worse Hollywood does at their professed goals. And they can't even say that, no, oh, that's just how films are, you know? Because in indie films, we see women more often directing than they do in Hollywood. Okay, okay, so maybe it's just always been this way. Well, actually, screenwriting used to be a predominantly female profession. Um, but then, from 1982 through uh, 2005, they <laughs> accounted for 18% of employed screenwriters. And there was no change in that whole period I mean, it's not like we didn't get more quote-unquote woke during that period. We just decided not to do anything about it. Okay, utter failure, right? We know how badly Hollywood wanted to achieve diversity and equality, and so we know how badly they failed. Despite all the incentives we listed, Hollywood was unable to be flexible to meet their goal. And we can see the same rigidity in the face of, like, overwhelming incentives to be flexible uh, in other you know, artistic business ventures. So booksellers and publishers, you know, should have had a better time uh, trying to get to the digital storefronts and the um, at-home delivery storefronts. I mean, people who read books, they like being at home, guys. You got boxed out by Amazon. Get it? The boxes. And usually in boxes. Um, okay, well, how about another one? Film giants, they're unable to rebrand short films as quibbies, and 
as I tried to write that sentence, my spell check doesn't even recognize that word. These film giants got billions of dollars to make this platform that went uh, defunct in less than a year. Napster launched in 1999 with every piece of music and malware you could ask for. And, you know, if you wanted a clean legal alternative, iTunes launched the first legal digital catalog in 2003. It took them four years. So all these are business goals, not artistic goals. But they do show that in the face of a situation that required Mr. Fantastic levels of flexibility, the so-called creative industries were unable to be creative. So we see a business who has cultural, moral, and economical incentives to change, and they still don't change. Why? It can't be because they don't desire change. It must be because they desire predictability more. Conservatism stems from the following mindset. So if we mess with this system, we run the chance of things getting way worse. Creativity stems from the opposing mindset. The system is so horrible that change must be made. Sometimes one side is correct about an issue, sometimes the other side is correct. Claiming that the quote-unquote conservative type is incapable of creativity is outside the bounds of the argument I'm making, but something to think about. At least the kind of conservatism that doesn't actually offer any solutions to problems, but instead just says, no, keep it the same, to every issue that gets brought to them. Now, what is within the bounds of the argument I'm making is that one sees creativity mostly from those for whom the current system is intolerable. Why else leave the system? Why risk your well-being upending the system unless the system upends your well-being? It's the difference between someone warming themselves beside a fire and somebody on the fire being cooked. One benefits, the other really doesn't. One desires the fire, one desires a fire extinguisher. Now, and though I'd, I'd imagine most of you guys, even if you benefit from the fire in some way, would grab the hose if you heard someone crying out from within the flames. The person being made uncomfortable can make people who are comfortable uncomfortable about the person who's uncomfortable. You get that? Or you as the comfortable person can investigate and not make the uncomfortable person do all the work for you. Now, I'll tell you how I became uncomfortable with my work. Uncomfortable enough to completely... Well, I'll just tell the story. I had a book already written a few years ago. It was about Lewis, a man with a wife and child who are captured by a nefarious queen who rules over her subjects with technological mind control. Only that mind control was losing control, and Lewis had to find out why and stop it, even though he's a freedom-loving dude because he wants to repossess his wife and child. He's even tempted with the possibility of erasing a memory that will make his wife and child not love him anymore. The irony behind this patriarchal mindset and independent streak was intentional and highlighted in the book. And if you'd asked me the second I typed the end whether the book was good or not or whether the message was clear or not, I'd have said, yeah, not not. I mean, of, of course it's good. I wrote it, right? I took my time. Didn't I? Studied hard, worked hard, finished strong. And especially, you know, my, my heart, my, my inner being was really had good intentions, you know? So whatever's on the page, just, just know that even if I offended you, that wasn't my intention. Even if I implied that, you know, somebody should, the wife and child are basically just props to get the hero invested in the story. All right, so I guess I knew deep down 
that there were changes to be made. But I remember the moment I knew I couldn't stand that anymore. I'd suspected, sure, that changes could, you know, go down. I'd, I'd known that the book wasn't saying what I'd meant it to say, at least not on the surface where people could see it. And I remember that moment because I was in a novel revision class at UCLA. We all read and critiqued everyone else's first uh, 25 pages. And they came to mind, and they liked it just fine. And after the class, I elected to just stay behind in that little classroom and think about whether or not I could walk out the door and make the long walk home comfortable in the knowledge that my novel was just fine. Um, I stayed in there for a couple hours. I truly do not believe that I was committed to writing books before that evening. Over the subsequent hours, I took all the criticism and praise that I'd had from myself and others, and I decided that the whole book needed to go. Page one, rewrite. I mapped out the next steps on a chalkboard, strangely excited to destroy the thing I'd so carefully created. I had a brain blast! I would take bits and pieces from the original story. I'd take inspiration from the themes I'd discovered in writing my first draft, but I'd gut the thing and root out all the rottenness and enjoy the creativity of, you know, <laughs> correcting the issues that I had created for myself. I'd do this because remaining in comfort had become uncomfortable. That is, I was the one in the fire. It was just that it took other people to make me recognize that fact. So anybody can put a couple of words together, honestly. Some can do it better than most. But once the desire for comfort is overridden by the desire for perfection, some can go further. I'm always reminded of the behind-the-scenes, you know, stuff in the prequel trilogy of Star Wars. So... We started with this, like, groundbreaking movie where this kid is, you know, forced to go off on an adventure and become uncomfortable. And the prequels, most of what people have a problem with is that George Lucas was way too comfortable. People said yes to him. They said uh, yes to Jar Jar, to a number of other um, interesting choices that didn't quite shake out. They also said yes to uh, George Lucas taking on a completely comfortable style of filmmaking. He filmed everything on green screens. He uh, just wanted to sit there and uh, drink his cup of coffee and, you know, not have to get up from his chair to direct his actors. I'm not making fun of the guy. I, I actually like him quite a bit. I just think that he was allowed to be comfortable. I just think that nobody got in his way and, like, tried to challenge him. And you can actually see as those movies go on and, um, you know, you get to two and three, the guy becomes more groundbreaking. Like slowly he's getting back to the George Lucas who was so raw and nervous and uh, disappointed in himself and in his future prospects that he just was forced to try something new and interesting. Because the fans were telling him, hey man, this is this is not fun. We don't like Jar Jar, just have him not be in the movie anymore. But do you see now what people say when they say, you know, light a fire under his butt or whatever. You know, get him going. We're going to talk next episode um, about what that push looks like for people, what that lighting the fire entails. How do you kickstart the desire to make something good into something great? But for now, I want to leave you with a slight note of caution, a slight note of conservatism. You know, something doesn't need to be changed just for the sake of change. Sometimes we are anchored to a proposition not just because we're lazy or we don't want to move, but because the proposition is good. And we talked last episode about 
sometimes how like you have to keep some things comfortable for other things to be difficult. You have to accept that not every wheel needs to be reinvented. When I revised the book that I was talking about before, um, I didn't gut it to kill it. I gutted it to take out the good bits. So I kept uh, the cool concept of, you know, uh, artificial hive mind. I kept the cool ideas of, you know, freedom not necessarily being a good thing all the time. Uh, freedom's differences, the freedom from and freedom to uh, being completely different concepts and how our different kinds of freedom war against each other and decrease freedom overall. It's th that was all really interesting to me still. I still wanted to keep that. I wanted to retain a character who is controlling in his private life uh, and thinks he loves freedom, but is actually just looking for the freedom to oppress. But now I have him just be a complete sad sack who recognizes that he messed up, who recognizes that his work needs revising, and he recognizes that from the very first page. Now how he revises, how he goes about uh, undergoing change, is the plot of the book. But we don't start with a guy who's like, oh yeah, this is nice, uh, me being mean to my wife. My book now starts with uh, my main character, Lewis, dragging his comatose wife to uh, the Erie to have her brain fixed because she overdosed on some drugs. And he thinks that he knows why, because he thinks that his controlling nature made her friggin' hate everything. And his motivation isn't to get his wife to come back to him, it's to just let his wife go back to her family. And Lewis sees his future as just staying out of her way by killing himself. Kind of an overcorrection, if you ask me, but uh, that's how he starts the book. We're not starting off with a character that we have to ask you to like, despite him being a total d-bag. But we are starting off with a person who has recognized that they're bad and wants to revise. That's inherently good. However, it's only good if you actually found something bad about yourself that you want to change. So, for instance, in uh, the strange case of Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde, um, we see a respectable doctor who, you know, has some dark impulses, and uh, he, he wants to change that. And so he puts all of his good impulses and his bad impulses into separate personalities and does some real... Real violence. Some real kill stuff. That's a revision. Chose the wrong thing to revise, though. Um, or, for instance, uh, in Star Wars, right? So we have uh, Anakin Skywalker in the prequels. Um, you know, he wants to... He sees, he sees bad stuff going on in the universe, and he wants to revise that. And his solution is... is space space fascism. fascism! He thinks that one of his uh, character flaws is not being powerful enough to save people. So he embraces space, space fascism, fascism and darkness and killing Samuel L. Jackson, which is the darkest thing you can do. They should teach that in the screenwriting classes. You want people to know your character's bad? Well, have them kill Samuel L. Jackson and the audience will know, oh, this is a bad dude. So that's my word to the wise, my word of caution. Don't just change stuff just to change stuff. Don't, you know, go about your revision process unless there's something that you've picked out to revise. But once you find it, we're gonna talk next week about that poosh, about that fire, that super hot fire.
All right, thanks for listening. And again, if you want to share this uh, with the folks, you know, this is a new series. It's a really good one. However, in the spirit of revision, I would like each and every one of you right now who is listening to this, uh, go ahead and, you know, check out authorsdozen.com on your podcasts or whatever on your social media and leave a comment wherever you can about like what you like about this show, uh, what could be changed, what sort of things weren't you clear on, um, what, what, what can I do? And, you know, I'll take that stuff and I'll be like, hmm... And if you like stuff, if you want to see more of it, well, then that's good too. And you'll see more of it because I like to please you, the people. That's all I've got to say about this episode of Desire. And I desire to end it. And I desire you to like, share, and subscribe. I desire that you share your desire for this wonderful episode with your friends. Don't you desire them to be happy? Don't you desire Authors Dozen to be the most popular show in the world? I mean, who else is going to get out the word about how good the original Star Wars was and how bad the prequels are? I mean, nobody's talking about this, guys. I just need to need to get it off my chest because it's just it's such an out there opinion that nobody has except for me. And I'm the only one talking.